It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 133. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So, Gary, you suggested a topic that is near and dear to our hearts and something I think we talk about with our readers from time to time as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That being? Software subscriptions. (laughs) And I just heard a bunch of heads explode. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've got it, you know, and I'm a developer. I've got apps in the app store. I've developed things over the years. And so, yeah, there really, there are two sides to every issue. Sometimes many more than two sides. At least, yeah, I was going to say at least two. And there definitely, definitely are two sides to the software subscriptions issue. Two big sides that, you know, and if you're, if you only look at it from the one side, it seems really obvious that the other side is wrong. <laughs> um, Wait, we're, we're talking about software here and not politics, right? No, not politics <laughs> at all. Uh, so let's, uh, you know, I guess, introduce the topic a bit. Um, originally, uh, software was sold basically one way. You bought a box <laughs> that had a disc or CD or something in it. I and you took it home and you installed it. And then you had software. Uh, you had an app that edited images that let you write documents that you know let you crunch numbers, and that was pretty much it. Every once in a while, there'd be a new version of that software that would come out, and you would say, "Oh, I'd like to have the new version of that software. It has features I want." And you'd go back to the store and you'd buy it. A lot of times, uh, you know, right from the beginning, people would say, "Hey, I don't want to pay. I paid a hundred dollars for that. I don't have to pay a hundred dollars again." So there'd be an upgrade price. Right, a discount. Yeah, you'd put your old serial number in. You get serial numbers in those days. You put your old serial number in, uh, or it's, you'd actually, in stores, a lot of times you'd buy the update box, right, instead of buying the regular box. Yes, I you remember know, those too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and eventually that all you know started to move more online. Well, um, to be fair, the boxes existed because there was no online. Right, there was no right? online. It was really yeah. the only way to deliver the bits to your computer. Right. And even, and there was a lot of interim things, like for a lot of software, like from the early days when I used to work with Macromedia software, for instance, I couldn't walk into a store and buy some of the Macromedia software. It wasn't like mainstream stuff, but I would order the box online. The box would be <laughs> delivered to me because uh, the bandwidth wasn't there to deliver. Right. Right. The know, bandwidth that. was enough to make a purchase, but not enough to make a delivery. Right. And I would get, uh, sometimes what you would do is you'd get the same box. Um, for the upgrade or for the regular, but you'd have to enter in a serial number and there would be an upgrade serial number and a full version of serial number. And they that way basically paid $100 the first time you bought it, maybe $50 to upgrade the next year or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people wouldn't upgrade. They'd say, no, the original version does everything I need. I don't need the new features. Um, and other people would be upgrading all the time. Um, Eventually, like as you said, they this moved online, and you could simply pay online for the upgrade and download the upgraded version. And if you had a license already, you could pay one price for it. If you didn't, you would get the same piece of software, but you'd have to pay full price because you know you you weren't upgrading. The more advanced systems would let you um, um, enter your product serial number online yes. and make the decision there. Yep. And perhaps even download something smaller because it didn't have to yep. download the original app. Uh, 
although more commonly, I suppose, you chose which one based on your own knowledge and you had to prove at install time when you installed the update that you had the previous version. It wasn't always a serial number, as I recall, right? Sometimes the presence, the mere presence of the previous version of the software yeah. on your machine was enough. I remember in uh, early versions of Windows, and I, I'm pretty sure this predates Windows XP, uh, sometimes the presence detection was kind of kind of simple-minded. Uh, it used to be at one point, I believe that you could either uh, uh, create a specific empty folder or create a specific file that could be empty in a specific folder. And that would be enough to confuse or to convince, excuse me, convince the uh, Windows updater that it was installing an upgrade and not a new version. There's even one piece of software I had once. Uh, it was called 3DS Studio Max for creating 3D models. Where when you bought the box, one of the things that came in the box was a dongle, an actual dongle. The, the original term you know used properly it's since been misused to the point where the definition of dongle has changed but back then it was basically something you connected to your computer that was a piece of hardware and the software would look for it and it knew that you had purchased the software so you got this dongle and that way you could get an upgrade or whatever and you had you still had your little piece of hardware that connected to the serial port on the back of the computer. Never actually encountered any of those, but I definitely yeah. heard of them. And they were usually, if I recall correctly, they were usually associated with higher end, more yeah. expensive software. This was like $1,000 at and least, maybe it, two. It was, as much, it was as much copy protection as it was um, you know, any form of, of true license management. Right, exactly. So, so everybody was happy, but that's not true. <laughs> everybody that talked to anybody else was happy. Uh, there were some people that were unhappy with the situation, and those people were the people that made the software. Because as it turns out, um, making software and maintaining it and supporting software is a full-time ongoing job. However, um, you get paid once for that. So the idea is you make a piece of software, it does something cool, a bunch of people buy it, and now they expect support and updates for the rest of their lives. Uh, the developer doesn't get paid for those support uh, and updates unless they actually do a real update and roll out a new product, do that whole thing, um, which is bad for trying to do that as for a living. It's like if you worked a regular job and you went in and they said, oh, we're going to pay you for the first year in advance. Here's, you know, $50,000. And then the end of the year came and you said, okay, it's time for my next year's payment. And they said, nope, you just have to keep working for us now. <laughs> and, you know, every once in a while, we'll throw you a little extra, right? You know, but uh, it basically, you got most of the money up front. That's not how it really works. You, you work and you get a salary or paid hourly or whatever. Well, but what software was, developers- was also frustrating though, was that that money, that upfront money was the competitive point. Right, mm -hmm. um, you were you were consumers purchasing software, were purchasing software. So mm -hmm. when there were competing pieces solving the same problem, they often competed not only on features but on price. What consumers weren't purchasing, at least not in their mind, was all this other stuff, the support and updates that they would still expect, but they wouldn't pay extra for, especially not in a competitive market. Right, and if you also consider that. Um, even if you intended to buy that software and it does like these things, you know, a list of things for you. And you said, I don't ever need it to do more things than that. 
that doesn't need mean that software doesn't need support because the thing is you're probably going to be upgrading your operating system. You're probably going to be upgrading your computer. You're probably going to be upgrading things you use with it. For instance, maybe if you buy photo editing software, the uh, types of photos that you take, say in 1999, right. are going to be very different than what you take in 2019. So was the software developed to take massive, you know, high resolution photos and that kind of thing. So even if you think, well, the list of features, I don't need anything beyond that. So I shouldn't have to pay anything beyond that. Other factors change. So when a new version of Windows or Mac OS comes out, if you expect that software to keep running on that version, um, there's probably going to need to be an update at some point to the software for it to even just be the same thing. And the person that's going to have to do that is the software developer. Um, they're going to have so, to take time and effort to do it. So the counter argument that I, I'm already hearing some of my readers mm -hmm. <laughs> say is that, but but I'm not updating my stuff, right? I'm, I'm still yeah. using 20-year-old Windows on a 20-year-old machine with this 20-year-old image processing software with my 20-year-old camera, and it's serving me just fine. Yeah. And that would be a small number of cases. In that case, the you, the developer really isn't doing anything else for oh, you. No, they still want support. <laughs> but they still want support, yeah. <laughs> right. So there's a, there's still a lot of that. So anyway, the, the model started to emerge of instead of having software as a product that you buy once, you have software as a service. It's basically um, you pay for a subscription to have that software and the subscription is good for a period of time, a month, a year. Um, and as part of that subscription, you get all the updates, you know, that's, you don't have to pay anything else. You get all the support, all the updates, all of that. And on the other end, the developer, whether it's a large corporation with a huge staff of developers or a single person, um, they have recurring income that then allows them to make this their job right. to maintain that software. Plus, it's well, I don't want to get into other ways that it's good, <laughs> but that's you know basically the, the real switch is uh, the real reason for switching was basically the model, the original model, pay once for something that you expect ongoing support for um, wasn't viable. It maybe it was a nice early way for the software industry to be born, but it in the long run, you know, you couldn't expect people to actually have a career in software development and to get quality software. Right. But um, it's funny because I think that one of the one of the differences, and I know that we'll we'll get into a little bit of this, is that I think it's easier for people to accept this from small developers where it's mm -hmm. clear that this is their job, their livelihood, their whatever. And you know, because it's a small developer, it's very easy to conceptualize that, well, yeah, you know, if, if they don't make money, they're going out of business. And no matter what kind of support I want or need, if they're not around, I don't get it. Um, I think where it really, really stumbles and where it really, really came to light, um, at least in my world, is with uh, Windows and Microsoft Office specifically, because it's this huge company that is making tons of money. So, you know, why, why do they need this ongoing revenue? Yeah, exactly. The, and same thing with Adobe, you know, two of the biggest uh, software suites out there right now that are you know, subscription basis are Microsoft's Office and Adobe Creative Suite. And to be clear, Adobe, Adobe went, um, uh, they went all in, right? Yeah. 
uh, Adobe Creative Cloud is subscription only. In fact, if I understand well, it- Well, not I, necessarily. As I, I thought, I'm pretty sure that, for example, if you want Photoshop, you're getting a subscription one way or another. Um, I, where, I'm whereas there, sure. there are versions of the Microsoft Office applications that you can pay one time right. and get one version right. of. Um, there are, there's a reason why I think that's a silly idea, but we'll get to that a little later. But like I said, I think, I thought Adobe went all in on that. No, there's so there are versions. So for instance, there's Photoshop LE that you can get. That's, that's not a subscription. There's a Lightroom version that's right but it's not the same software right it's it's not photoshop it's not the photoshop right Um, exactly well it's the same thing with a lot of there's yeah there's fewer features what it's it's i mean office has a one you can buy yeah i think it's a hundred you know it's the same you're saying it's exactly the same it's the same software it's a different pricing model that's all right you're only getting you know well and we'll talk later about uh how the deal is sweetened by yes. companies like Microsoft and yes, Adobe yes, with absolutely. extras. Um, but, but yeah, there's, so there's two different approaches. One is here's like alternate versions that you don't have to uh, get a subscription for. And then you know, here's the real thing, but you're, you're going to be out of date after a year or two. Um, so yeah, it, 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 the thing about a big company is a big company. There's still developers there. There's still real people, real software developers sitting coding the stuff, the teams range in size. Um, some teams are surprisingly big and some teams are surprisingly small. There's probably pretty well-known software out there that's done by teams of 10 people or less. Mm-hmm. And there are probably pieces that have hundreds of people working on them in various aspects. But the the entire team itself uh, gets paid. They're salaried employees. And the idea is that you know if the revenue model is an ongoing subscription, then you have, okay, this is how much is coming in for the product. This is how much we're spending on development. We've got our team here. Um, and you could calculate that. Whereas when there's these, you know, here's our big new version. Version 8.0 comes out this fall, you know, then there's this one point where a bunch of money comes in. And how does that relate to the size of the team? Do right. we do we release, you know, finish 8.0 and lay off half the team? Because, which is, that's an actual thing that really used to happen oh, a yeah. lot. Yep. <laughs> uh, you lay off half the team and then you, you know, as six months later, they, oh, here's some new features, things we want. Let's staff up again. We need to come out with version 9.0 and you'd hire a bunch of people on. Um, there's, but there's another aspect to it too, that I think a lot of people have difficulty comprehending when you're talking about large companies like Microsoft and having been there and having seen sausage being made. I can mm-hmm. absolutely tell you that you may think that, you know, Microsoft brings in a lot of money, which they do, which means Microsoft products can just do whatever they want, whatever, without regard to where the money's coming from. And that's simply not the case. The fact that, um, you know, maybe the, the, like today, I think the cloud services, Azure and all that kind of stuff bring in most revenue or corporate sales bring in most revenue or, or Windows brings in the most revenue. Mm. That doesn't let the other apps off the hook, right? The, the, um, I have been on product teams where we have had a product, a good product that uh, wasn't paying its own way you still have to pay your own way within those companies. Even though the company's making money hand over fist, if your specific product 
isn't pulling in revenue to justify its existence, its existence will no longer happen, right? It's going to mm -hmm. go away. That's the nature of, of, well, any business. Yes, there might be a larger buffer in a large company because they've got much more financial flexibility. But the fact is the bottom line is still very much the same. Products justify their existence by the amount of revenue they generate. And if they don't generate enough revenue in a large company, the projects get canceled. In a small company, the, the company goes yep. under. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. The, uh, and or individual employees, I mean, you know, lose their job or don't get their raises or right. whatever because the product isn't succeeding. And, you know, they may look at it and say, it, it may not always be what you think it is. It may not be the board of directors sitting around saying, we're going to take software product X and make it a subscription service. Now, <laughs> it may actually be the the team of 20 developers and you know, the project lead that sits around and says, I can guarantee you it's closer to the bottom than it is to the top. Yeah. Right? We need to here moving forward. We, we're going to propose to the company yes. that our piece of software goes subscription instead, right. because right. You know, and I should also note there's a third party here, kind of a virtual party. There's the the uh, software developer. There's the user. There's also the product. And when you look at the product itself as it's kind of an entity, um, a, a weird thing happened back when these major versions needed to come out. They needed to come out because they needed to make money. And a lot of times they were annual. Sometimes companies were every other year, every 18 months. But you need to come out with this new version and you need to make sure that you hit, a, you know, we bring in this amount of money with our new version. So the marketing department takes over or, the, you know, <laughs> if, even if they're not marketing, the, the project leads say, we need to wow people with this. What can we stuff into this new version? Yes that will get people to buy it, to upgrade, to do all this. Now, to be fair, again, having been one of the sausage makers, it's not yeah. about feature stuffing. It's about what features can we identify that will add value to our product? Granted, there are going to be the random, you know, pet projects that somebody believes in that nobody else does, yeah. you know, feature stuffing. But I don't want this to sound like they're adding features for the sake of adding features, even though in a way they kind of are, right? Mm. They're choosing which features to add based on, honestly, it all comes back to value, right? Will people, are people going to be willing to pay money for this new feature? If the answer is yes, then great. It's a feature that can get added to the product. If the answer is no, I guarantee you there are floors littered with features that never made it right. because nobody thought people would actually pay money for it. Well, I want to even, I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit and say that there's two types of value. <laughs> there's actual value and perceived value. And, you know, a feature that may be actual value might be something that say optimizes how the software works, but doesn't, give the developers anything, a bullet point to add saying version eight includes this, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of effort to do. And people, the users of it will appreciate it once they have it. On the other hand, there's ones that have perceived value, which may be flashy. Now you could do 3d flashing text with our, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. And it sounds cool. And it's like, Ooh, I want to play with that. But when you get it, it's actually like not as valuable as you thought. The old way, the the way of encouraging people to spend money on an update to the software, and rewarded the the things that are the highest perceived value. Yes. Whereas the subscription method now takes that away. Uh, First, it, it takes reduces it. 
it reduces it, but it it makes it. I think the things that have actual value get a slightly higher priority than they would have had otherwise. You're not yes. pressured to say we need to make sure this version. Like if you have if you're in version eight and you're planning version nine and ten, you may go and say, oh, there's stuff we wanted. We wanted make version nine, like really solid and do all this. And then in version 10, we'll add these cool flashy features and say, no, 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 we need to move some of those up because we need to make sure we sell enough boxes of version nine. That is sausage. I recognize. Yeah. So <laughs> the, so the idea is that you could be more, I guess, more honest about what goes into the version to say, look, we really need to, to make this better or that, even though it's not as flashy, but now since it's a description, we can maybe prioritize things a little bit better. And also of course, not having a big, like, this is the time we're doing the update. And this is when the new features go in. You can, instead of introducing 10 new features in one big update, you can use introduce 10 features, one each month with the subscription service, right. which in the end will, I think, make users happy instead of saying, oh my God, everything changed. <laughs> Everything's different. They did all this. And, you yeah, know, I, I think that they're, they're, the complaints you and I will hear, and admittedly, in both cases, it's from a subset. Most people are actually pretty pretty reasonable mm -hmm. about this. But the, the, the set of people will change from everything changed to, yeah. oh, my God, it's always changing. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because if you're yeah, releasing you. a yeah, change yeah, yeah. to it you know, once a month or something like that. constantly new changes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I think change, it, it, we've talked about change. It, we, it's yeah, a, it's we almost its own separate topic. Change is inevitable. The real question is, which, what is the delivery approach that best serves um, you as a consumer? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it has to be, I, I guess you look at it from both sides, right? So, and we've looked at it from the developer side. It's it's really obvious why it's better for developers get them to keep their jobs. They can you know the smaller developers or even those on a team can actually have longevity in their in what they're doing, um, that kind of thing. But from the user perspective, uh, users you know the, in general the the reaction we hear the loudest anyway is the negative reaction. Mm -hmm. um, probably some of that is the whole squeaky wheel thing. Of course, you, you don't see people that say, oh, okay, subscription makes sense, shouting that from the hilltops, right? Going onto forums and saying, I am so glad the developer is doing this sensible thing. You know, no, you just get the complainers. <laughs> That's what you and I do. <laughs> yeah. You, you get the complainers, uh, of course, having a louder voice in any, any kind of thing. But from the user perspective, uh, it seems first of all, so, sometimes like you're spending more money, um, you know, oh, this hundred dollars a year, there's, that's more, way more than I was spending before. It's not always the case. Right. And, you know, sometimes you had software, usually when it goes subscription, it goes cheaper than what it would cost you if you always updated. Yes. Like if you bought the annual updates and you looked at that as a subscription, when the software goes subscription, you're actually now paying less. They, you know, it's on purpose. That's one of the arguments I have with people all the time about Microsoft Office because mm. um, it is honestly to me, it's a no-brainer. There's just no thought required. Getting a subscription uh, for a hundred bucks a year yeah. to all of Office on up to five machines. Yeah. Is across platforms, by the way, both Mac and PC. Yeah, um, it is. is just so much less expensive than buying one product and uh, you know one of the programs, maybe you only care about Microsoft Word, uh, but even if you only update it every other year, 
Yeah. You're still paying more for a significant amount less. Yeah. It just feels, it feels weird. What's missing. That- and I just, I just realized this. I think one of the things that, um, that people miss, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean that in terms of, you know, they wish they had, or they, 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 they feel the lack of is control. In other yeah. words, that every other year choice is a choice, whether or not to upgrade, whether or not it's part of your budget this year, whether or not the program's meeting your needs, whether or not the new fe- program has the features you want, yada, yada, right? The list of things that in the past marketers would have pushed on to try and make sure that the answer was always, yes, you want this. Yes, you're willing to pay the money. Consumers, in a sense, once they subscribe to something, they're giving up all that choice. Mm-hmm. That software is going to update. That software, you are going to get all five office programs, even though you might only use one or two. <laughs> um, so it's it's a it's it's a there's a mental block there. I think I don't even want to call it a block. There's a perception I think that a lot of marketers are missing that people care about choice. They really do, and uh, this is something that, from their perspective, is taking away a significant amount of choice in exchange for what you and I and many others perceive to be significant value. I mean, amazing value, mm-hmm. but they just don't necessarily see it that way. No. And, and part of that uh, loss of choice, I think, is the fact, you know, you give over your payment information and that money is going to be taken from you right? at some point, right? right. You know, you, you're not going to be asked, oh, your bill is due. You um, know, you're going that is to- one of the ways that um, one of the distinctions I actually appreciate with the various subscriptions that I do have, because uh, mm-hmm. I have way more now than I ever thought I would, because I was violently anti-subscription 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done a complete 180 on that. But there, there, there are companies that I subscribe to that a month before will tell you, hey, just a reminder, we're going to hit your credit mm-hmm. card in a month and here's how much um, and here's what you're getting. Um, and, and, if you want to cancel, here's what you do, right? So yeah. the, the companies that are the most upfront and the most forthcoming, honestly, I appreciate them the most, and they are the most likely to get my continued business. Yeah, and that's not everybody. Exactly. <laughs> um, but it is, uh, yeah, it, it's a factor, I, hate, I think. The ones I hate control. Are, are the ones where... Not only don't they charge you, I'm sorry. Don't not only don't do they not warn you when they charge you, they don't tell you. Oh yeah. So that like three or four weeks after you're going through your credit card receipts or or whatever, however you manage your credit card payments, and all of a sudden there's this charge from this actually obscure third party <laughs> that actually doesn't relate to the software. The, you know, the name doesn't necessarily map to the software that you purchased. Right. Um, and uh, you have to go and do the research to figure out exactly what was that? Is this a fraudulent charge? So. Yeah, no, exactly. The um, Yeah, there's uh, various ways of doing it. Uh, what's interesting, I don't know if you see this at all on the Windows side, but you know, if you get subscriptions through the app stores, either Mac or iOS, um, then, you know, they could do it through Apple. So you, you have one place where you can go to, which is really nice to see all of your Apple subscriptions. Right. And it will say things like, okay, I've got my Apple Music subscription. Actually, I have their their kind of premium bundle, but it will show me subscriptions that I have 
to other software that I've purchased through Apple, right. even if it's third party, which is I like a lot because yeah, that's awesome. It's it one really place. Is. I think Microsoft is trying to move that way on the Windows side with the, with the Microsoft yeah. Store, but I think there's simply too much inertia because there's so sure. many different vendors in so many okay. different places, and we don't have that single funnel really to get software on your machine yeah. that would actually enable that. I, you know, I've actually gone so far. Um, I have a spreadsheet labeled subscriptions. Oh. And uh, it's named subscriptions. And I actually keep track of where all, you know, how often these guys are coming back and when I made my last payment. And yeah, there are a few that are highlighted. And they're highlighted with a date set about a month before the subscription is supposed to happen because these are the ones I want to cancel. Whether or not yeah. they remind me or not, these are the ones. And sometimes it's easy. And sometimes there's some hoops to jump through. I'm sure. Looking at, yeah. looking at you, Amazon. <laughs> um, now, now, also from the user perspective, a very common thing I hear, and I don't think it's a majority of people at all or even close to it, but I think these are the loudest voices, are the people that get some software, it could be Microsoft Office, it could be uh, Adobe stuff, um, and they, they just, they're not pro level, right? They're just regular users, but they enjoy using, say, Photoshop, mm -hmm. and they don't want to pay this annual subscription. They don't. They're using an older version of Photoshop. They don't want a new version. They they don't use it often enough to justify. It. Now, if you're a pro, you know, Photoshop user, sure, the subscription is. I mean, you probably don't even think about it, right? It's right. like you're making money from Photoshop. That's right, your, is your job, job. right? It's right. and it, it probably seems dirt cheap to you, right? Compared to other the other things like your office lease or whatever, but the. <laughs> The people that are like, oh, I enjoy using Photoshop. Every once in a while, I get a little like side gig where I have to edit some photos. But boy, it seems really expensive to do the Photoshop uh, or you know Adobe Creative Cloud subscription. I'd rather, I wish I could just have the software and just be a few versions behind. I, I hear this the most when it comes to software subscriptions. And this is what gets people, a lot of people to switch actually, because there are a lot of alternatives to Photoshop that are out there and people switch to them because they say, oh, I'm switching to uh, Pixelmator or uh, Affinity Photo because it's one-time payment and I don't have to deal with subscriptions. Of course, the thing that makes me a little scared about that is like, well, what about the poor developers at Affinity and Pixelmator and you know other similar apps that are now you know doing this as a one-time payment, but at some point they need to somehow compete with you know the in terms of like paying their employees or themselves right. it's just one right. person um like you can't it's not sustainable if it was sustainable the companies would still be doing it so it's great to say i'll switch to affinity photo from photoshop because i'm sick of paying every year for a subscription i worry about what's going to happen in the long run can that really be sustained by right. affinity for instance it's unclear. It's funny because there are some companies that are definitely um, backed into a corner with this kind of stuff. There's some uh, utility software that um, I occasionally look at and evaluate and I subscribe. It's a subscription model like a lot of this stuff is these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got desperate. They, they seriously were in a revenue crunch. And what they did seemed incredibly counterintuitive, but they were basically borrowing from the future. They were selling um, lifetime licenses. Mm. For, uh, at a discount, right? But they were basically saying, hey, for a short time, you know, we need the money, so we'll give you a lifetime discount. 
And by the way, if you really want to support our company, you'll buy more than one. Uh, but that becomes, you know, it almost becomes donationware at that point, right? It's, yeah. It's it's not, uh, you know, having multiple licenses for the same software is is not necessarily something that always adds value to the user. No. It just seemed backward, and I do worry about companies that try and take that kind of approach. But you're right. If you're if your primary revenue model is selling individual copies of software, that that's what you got to do. You got to sell individual copies of software. Yeah, and lots so, of them. So I'm worried about that. I'm worried about the people that think that, oh, I found a way to avoid the software subscription. Right. If you really did, I mean, if it's not viable in the long term. Right. It was, um, what's really interesting, and again, I, I, it, I think it, it's a little scary for those um, paid software alternatives. Um, and maybe this is just because I'm thinking of the, the photo editing space mm. but there are a lot of really good free version free soft free solutions too yes. right so where you don't have to pay anything um right. and at least there your expectations are set that yeah there's not going to be anybody to call <laughs> for help so yeah i mean there's yeah there's something to be said for that for the expectation of not having any support i had um, a real forehead slap moment a couple of years ago because mm. i found myself in that same um frustrating position, I used to use um, QuickBooks as yes. my bookkeeping software. Me, me too, many years ago. And they um, uh, they probably impacted you before they impacted me, but the PC version of QuickBooks was expensive mm -hmm. and you were essentially, it was a one-off purchase, but it stopped working after two years or maybe three, right? So essentially, it was a subscription model without being a subscription model. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to keep using the software, you were forced to upgrade every three years. And if you were using a bookkeeper, right, they were pretty much forced to upgrade every year. But if you wanted to continue using your bookkeeper, then you needed to keep upgrading your, your uh, QuickBooks. And, you know, I looked at it and was like, you know, okay, this much money and this much, you know, I'm paying this much for my bookkeeper. And, um, you know, it's, it's a pain and I grumped and groused about it. Um, and I didn't want to do QuickBooks online, which really was the ev the thing that they were trying to move everybody to. And that's why I say they probably impacted you first, because mm -hmm. if I understand it correctly, they actually discontinued the Mac version of QuickBooks um, almost completely and said, yeah, you need to go use the online version. Right, which I I, I liked. I, I'd never used it, but mm -hmm. I liked the idea of taking online because using QuickBooks for years, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but it occurred to me it was all stuff that could be done on a, as a web service. Yes. yes. <laughs> like, it's like, I'm just filling out forms here. I don't need a special right. graphical user interface for this. Right. Um, so I'm back in that position now where, okay, I bit the bullet and I switched. I no longer have a bookkeeper. I do it all myself. Yep. Um, I'm paying, you know, a certain amount of money, not just for QuickBooks online, but there's like a one third party add-on that's also a subscription that imports um, uh, payment information from Stripe. And I'm paying significantly less than I was paying when I was grousing about by, you know, needing to get an online service. It's like, okay, I, yep, yeah, I was that guy, right? I was the guy who didn't do the math. And yeah. now that I've done the math, I'm much happier and in control of my own world. And I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people um, have a hard time doing. I went, uh, I went much further than that. I just stopped using QuickBooks altogether. Uh, because I realized that, uh, well, I wasted a lot of time always trying to figure out things that accountants knew that I didn't. Okay. So I would, you know, something weird would happen. Oh, I got a $5 rebate on this thing that I bought. Mm 
-hmm. where does that go? (laughs) And I'd waste like an hour trying to figure out how that worked from an accounting standpoint. And I realized that, you know, I could just keep track of this in spreadsheets. Um, And the idea being that every single piece of data, like the actual raw data that I was entering in to QuickBooks, I could also put in the spreadsheets. There was no missing data. Right. And then it's my accountant's problem. <laughs> so, cause I, they wanted QuickBooks and I went to them, you know, they were the ones that got me to use it. And I went to them and I said, what if I just gave you all the data and you guys handle it? And they said, sure, we could do that. So I said, great, here's all the data. And it's just, it's really nice. It's easy for me to put the data in there because it's a, you know, it's a couple spreadsheets income out, you know, income and expenses and things like that. Right. And I let them worry about right. that stuff. And I don't have to keep, <laughs> I don't have to every March relearn QuickBooks and figure out what it is I'm doing right. to get the data that I already had in a spreadsheet it, into, kind of, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, if, you know, for those random, you know, chargebacks and so forth, mm-hmm. I just make stuff up to make sure what well, I, I care about, you know, the taxes coming out, right. That I pay yeah. the tax, the tax correctly, no matter what this it's. And for me, it's the state. I actually, for, for up until this year, I was having to file a uh, monthly uh, tax return with the right. state. Yeah. You had that. Yeah. And they just switched me to quarterly. So being able to um, see all that in QuickBooks Online and, and just you know see the reports and do the have it do all the math and balance the accounts and so forth. Yeah, I, you know maybe I'm a little bit more of a control freak, but I that much is working out for me. Well, I'm, that's I'm, yeah, that's perfectly fine. I just yeah. I you know now if there's something I don't know what to do with, like you were saying, you make some you know something up. Mm-hmm. I just I just have it a spreadsheet for that. Yep. I'll put it in there. <laughs> a I got this $5 and this is what it's from. And I describe it. And at some point in my account, my, you know, the company I have, I have doing the accounting is going to see that line and they'll figure out what to do with it. Yep. So I just had one of those things happen to me. So I, a just, very, I just put a line, a very ironic, um, uh, tangent, not that this isn't already a tangent, yeah. Um, you realize that I was the development lead for Microsoft Money 3.0. Money, yeah. Which was Microsoft's account, uh, entry into uh, the personal finance world and uh, much loved by the people that used it. Um, it mm-hmm. went on for m- multiple versions, but um, it actually was one of the the poster children for something I was saying earlier where, you know what, it just wasn't making enough money. Um, literally, money wasn't making money. Money wasn't making money. And Who would have uh, thought? <laughs> and the the product the product died a a very quiet death except for the amongst the folks for whom it they were uh, you know very passionate about it there are still people that are using it today but um but yeah so all this talk about personal finance i have a uh, um a dog in that fight cool well there are a couple of things i wanted to mention yes. about the whole subscription model um first there's the the other thing users have a problem with is sometimes users feel like their documents are being held hostage. So for instance, you you use Photoshop for a few years, maybe you did it semi-professionally or professionally, and now you're not doing as much of that anymore. Mm -hmm. But you have all these files, Photoshop files from all these projects. If you stop paying your subscription, you can't open them anymore. You don't have Photoshop. So, I mean, this could come up. Imagine a, a graphic designer that does, has a bunch of clients and maybe one client comes back every year, update our, our real estate brochure, you know, for this apartment building or whatever it is. Okay, every year, January, they pay me 500 bucks and I do this update. And now you get a, a job doing something else. And you're like, I don't need Photoshop anymore. I don't use it for anything else. But you still have this one little $500 a year job in January. 
Well, you can't open that Photoshop document without Photoshop or, you know, as I'll explain in a minute, you can, but you kind of feel like I need to keep paying this ransom to Adobe or my documents are basically not accessible. The original ransomware. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a kind of a legitimate feeling. And I don't think it's the kind of thing where there's like some, you know, people in Adobe with, uh, you know, twirling their mustaches and saying, <laughs> ha ha ha, we've got them. You know, I think really it's a problem, uh, probably a problem they'd rather not have, you know, um, solving it is kind of tricky. You know, they, they don't, can't produce a standalone version of a of Photoshop else, you know, a bunch of people would jump to it and all that, you know, so how do you, how do you deal with it? One way to deal with it is a lot of times, uh, things like Photoshop can be opened in other apps. You right. just got, got to get one of those apps for Microsoft office. Of course, there are a few, uh, office suites out there like LibreOffice and such right. that allow you to open up, uh, documents, um, and use them. So, you know, you have to really look for other solutions or sometimes do a conversion, you know, and say, okay, I'm going to leave Photoshop. I think these projects will be ongoing. Um, let me convert them, export them in a certain format now uh, before I cancel my subscription. And then I'm going to switch over to using, you know, uh, Affinity Designer or something like that. Right. Um, and so it's tricky, but it 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 is kind of a an it's, area that's a, that's I don't know. It, there for some people, lot, it's a problem. A lot more options than people realize, but there's also a lot fewer options than we would like. The problem, and I can speak to this on the on the Microsoft Office side. The problem with alternatives like um, LibreOffice, OpenOffice, those kinds of things. There's a bunch, of, even Google Docs, right? Which is yeah. a, a, you know, a great way to uh, to deal yeah. with a lot of this. Uh, if you are just looking for a tool to use, they're all great. Yeah. If you are looking for a tool to use to exchange Word documents in mm. high fidelity with other users of Microsoft Word, they're not. Because while they understand the file format and they won't lose any of your content, there's a really, really good chance it won't look quite the same. And mm. if that matters, then very often only Word will do. Or only, right. or only Excel will do. I mean, even like Excel is a great example, right? There are some really, really esoteric functions that you can use in spreadsheets that I don't believe are anywhere else. Right. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you can't, you're stuck. And those are, there's no good solution for that. Correct. I'm kind of in a situation like that with my, you know, Adobe Creative Cloud subscriptions, one of the most expensive ones. I don't use Photoshop enough to justify it. Um, I don't use Illustrator enough to justify it. I don't use almost any apps that Adobe provides enough to justify it, except for Adobe Animate, which used to be called Adobe Flash. <laughs> um, I have a whole bunch of apps that are in the App Store that are developed using Adobe Animate. Um, I don't use Adobe Animate on a daily or even monthly basis. It's been right. a long time since I opened it. So why can't I just get rid of the subscription? Well, I could accept that if then I need to suddenly update one of my apps for some reason, security reason, updating for some API or something, I wouldn't be able to open the source code without having Adobe Animate. And I can't have Adobe Animate without the subscription. So as long as I have an app in the app store that uses Adobe Animate, I'm stuck paying that subscription to Adobe to to you know keep the you know, at least have the potential to update those apps. The I suppose I probably could let it lapse. I was going to say and, you could you could snooze it, right? I could snooze it and then have to jump back in. 
Right. Um, so there's that, but you know, it, that's it's one of the tough... things I keep telling myself whenever I subscribe to any other online streaming services. Yeah. You know what? I'm done watching that video or that series or that, whatever. I'll just step away from it, you know, turn off the monthly charge. And then if they come up with something else later, I'll turn it back on again. Of course I never do. But, but yeah. The, yeah. Well, you yeah. can turn these things on and off without necessarily, at least at the monthly level, uh, without necessarily, uh, uh, you know, paying a penalty. Some services will give you a, a discount if you pay annually, but still. Yeah, exactly. Um, with the Adobe stuff uh, up until the end of last year, I was of course also maintaining lots of websites that had flash games on them. Right. Um, that's gone. And Adobe really, you know, nailed that coffin shot and super glued it mm-hmm. and buried it, you know, <laughs> 18 feet under mm-hmm. by basically turning the flash plugin off for everyone. So I don't have to worry about those 200 or so flash games that I had across my different sites, maintaining those at all. Cause they're completely useless now. So I went from having a very complex, like reason I needed to have this Adobe uh, creative cloud subscription to having a very simple one. And the simple one comes down to about 15 apps right now because <laughs> I've retired a bunch of older ones. Right. Um, so I could, I have taken the most important one of those and moved that to Swift. And that was a long effort by me. I could, you know, chop off the long tail and do a few more apps like that mm-hmm. and get to the point where I maybe had five or six or seven apps all converted over to Swift, none, no reliance on Adobe at all and save myself 600 bucks a year. But um, it's not, I'm not quite there. It's something I think about, <laughs> right. and that's the first step, is thinking about it. <laughs> so maybe in a few years, I yep. will be there. A few more yep. years of paying Adobe. Now, uh, Adobe and uh, Microsoft Office are really good examples of another thing that goes on with subscription services, and that's added value. Um, a lot of these subscription services to entice you, they'll add things besides just the software. Right. Uh, one of those things like Adobe ads right off the bat is more software. Yes. Um, you know, I <laughs> don't shovel full. <laughs> yeah. I don't need uh, Adobe premiere. I use final cut pro for stuff like that. Right. But you know what? I've got it. Yep. If I need it, yep. I don't use Adobe illustrator more than a couple times, but I got it. Uh, they have a whole bunch of other apps to do weird and interesting things. Mm-hmm that every once in a while I play with, they have this one that allows you to animate cartoons and that was fun to play with for a bit. And sometimes I almost think of an idea I might be able to use that for. <laughs> um, so it's an advantage, you know, it's like, oh, all this cool software that I that I could be using is really cool. Every once in a while, Adobe uh, Acrobat Pro, right? I have yes. no real use for that. Right. But every once in a while, somebody asked me something or I decide to see if you could do something as a PDF. And it's really cool to be able to quickly download that because I yep. have the Creative yep. Cloud thing to there's play with. Features, it. There's features in, in Acrobat DC Pro that I think just aren't in the uh, uh, the regular version that I think I use all the time. I think these are features that are pretty unique to the Pro version, like yep. um, rearranging pages, removing pages, um, uh, combining PDFs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, it's just very natural in the Pro version, and yeah, that's that's that makes my life easier. InDesign, Adobe After Effects, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So that's the first thing that, uh, and you could say the same thing about Microsoft Office. Maybe you're, you have it for Word, but if suddenly you need to do a PowerPoint thing, yep. you've got that. Yep. Um, the other thing is a lot of them throw cloud storage at you. Yeah, uh, both Adobe it, yes. and yep. Microsoft do. 
which could come in handy. And it's maybe not the reason that you get the subscription, but right. once you've got it, it's like, oh, okay. Um, and there are other things. Adobe throws like there's some fonts and <laughs> other stuff. They, they have a stock photography thing, which is excellent, which is uh, I love, but that's not part of Adobe Creative Cloud. Right. Um, I wish it were. I, yeah, make, I wish it, that would make it pretty compelling. That would it actually, would make it compelling. And I only pay, I think I pay 30 bucks a month for that. So really, I mean, boy, they could, I would stop thinking about converting my apps <laughs> if Adobe stock was part of it, because right. then I could, and I'd be like, oh, well, I'm getting a lot of value just from stock itself, but I have to pay 30 bucks a month for stock all by itself. Um, and so there might be other things that other developers also offer that could sweeten the deal. Right. And, and, and what I find fascinating about, um, so Adobe, you can install your, that software on two machines. They call yeah. it one machine and a backup, but in reality, it's two machines. And um, that's nice as far as it goes. Um, but uh, for some of us who, for whatever reason, are machine crazy, it can actually be, be a bit of a, a problem at times. Microsoft's deal is just amazing. Uh, yeah, the five. The, well, it's, it's, it's even better than that. So you can... Uh, install it on five different machines in the same quote unquote family, whatever that means. And of course, there's nobody running around checking to see what you're doing. Uh, but you can also share your subscription with other people, at least at the OneDrive level. So you get like a terabyte of cloud storage that, you know, already then you've got like six terabytes if you share it with other people. And, you know, those other people, like I'm sure you have multiple accounts of your own. Uh, as I do, I have, you know, more than one Microsoft account, more than one Gmail account. Uh, my wife benefits from the fact that, uh, I have the, uh, the OneDrive storage because it's, you know, then just throw in part of what she's got available to her as well. I mean, it's, it's, that kind of stuff is pretty amazing. <laughs> the one that cracks me up is, uh, did you know that when you get a Microsoft office subscription, you get a certain number of minutes on Skype? Hmm. Interesting. That's People a, are apparently still using Skype. Yeah, yeah. The two surprises there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, there's so a lot of aspects to the whole thing. Um, and hopefully, I don't think we necessarily presented any solutions, <laughs> but we did present what I hope will be understanding. Um there's, for I think what you said earlier too was that the first step is to think about it, not just react to it. Because yeah. if you think about it, and I'm not saying the answer is going to be the same for everybody, for sure, but in no way. But if you think about it, you might find that, you know, if you could just get yourself past that initial reaction of, I don't like subscriptions, as I had to do, uh, you may find that uh, not only is it a good value, it's a better value than you ever thought. Uh, depending on how you use it, what other machines you have, all the different, you know, whatever comes bundled into the subscription, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the reality of the situation is uh, that it is the model that we're all moving towards. And in, you know, in some ways, it really shouldn't surprise you because you've been doing subscriptions for decades. What is your email service but a subscription? What is your ISP but nothing more than a subscription? Mm -hmm. What is your telephone? Nothing more than a subscription. Uh, if you don't want to pay every month, great, you don't have a telephone. Uh, that's kind of sort of the model we're working on here. And the other one that really confused people is uh, the term 
software as a service. Because when Microsoft started to use that phrase with Windows 10, when it was originally released five or six years ago, all of a sudden people thought that that meant that Windows was itself going to be an online service, like mm. you know, like Outlook.com or something like that, which of course is not necessarily the case. There are ways you can get Windows as a service if you're a developer using Azure and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is that for normal people, no, all it really meant was that it was going to be uh, something that would, like these other subscription services, would update itself automatically, would, you know, would, would add features that were um, deemed to be appropriate, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was basically the update model that said, you know, once you've got Windows 10, you don't have to buy it every year. You don't have to buy it every other year. Um, you're just getting the updates as they're made available. Uh, everybody thought that they were going to then at some point start charging for it like mm. other software, uh, but they haven't. It's still, you know, it's kind of like a blend where, yeah, you are buying it once and it does seem to be getting supported forever. The commitment that they made is that at the time it would be supported on the hardware you have uh, for as long as you have the hardware. But that actually turns out no longer to be the case. They backed away from that one um, at some point. Uh, Windows or the drivers and software associated with it have the the right, the ability, I don't know. They eventually may stop supporting certain pieces of hardware. And at that point, you know, there is no commitment to support every possible piece of hardware forever. Mm -hmm. So you may end up with uh, a version of Windows that says, hey, you know what, you can't update and this version of Windows is coming to an end or its support is coming to an end at a certain date. Even then, they're not turning it off. You can still keep using it, just like people are still using Windows 7 or even Windows XP. Uh, but you are missing out on things that some may consider to be important, like security updates and the like. Mm. Yeah. So, so I think we've thoroughly discussed the topic. Just get a Microsoft Office subscription. I'm not making any money from saying so either. Just do it. It's the right thing. It's cheaper in the long run. Trust me. If you need it. If you, if you use this stuff at all. But yeah, yeah. there's... Do think there's, about it. Yeah. Um, Don't write Cool. So what? speaking of cool, what did you, what have you seen so, recently? Here? Uh, uh, yesterday or the day before, I finished a book and I marked it as done on Goodreads. And apparently that caught Kay's attention. Our occasional uh, former host... Mm -hmm. former co-host, occasional now guest, uh, Kay. And he recommended to me via Goodreads a book called The Elements of Eloquence, Secrets to the Perfect Turn of Phrase. And it actually addresses a small sliver of something that has fascinated me for a long time, the concept of rhetoric and teaching rhetoric. It's not something we do anymore, um, but it is something that apparently was huge in uh, centuries past. And I'm just finding it really entertaining. The guy's a good writer. Uh, he's talking about the different forms of the way we actually do turn phrases. And uh, uh, I'm learning, well, I, I shouldn't say I'm learning a lot of obscure words. I'm seeing a lot of obscure words and their definitions. I'm just not committing them to memory. So I can't really say that I'm learning them. But uh, it's an entertaining read for anybody who is a writer. Um, I'm finding it kind of fascinating. And you may find all sorts of different kinds of turns of phrases in my writing coming up. He's using a lot of classical writing, including Shakespeare as examples, just because sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. Um, anyway, that's, that's that's my my ain't it cool for this week. It's, it's kind of interesting. I'm halfway through. Cool. I'm going to that myself. 
Um, say on Apple TV Plus uh, this last week, started a new series started that isn't getting as much attention, I think. But it, it watching the first two episodes, I think it deserves some attention. It's a, a TV series adaptation of The Mosquito Coast. Um, and, uh, of course, there was a movie by that name and a book by that name, you know, was the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a, a the first two episodes or hour-long episodes really, um, I found them to be pretty good. Enjoyed them a lot. The neat thing about it is the book was written by Paul Thoreau. And the lead actor in this TV series is Justin Thoreau the nephew of the author interesting so of course uh, you probably know he's he's a pretty getting to be a pretty a-list actor sure now um and uh but he you know is involved also in producing this so he's producing and starring in a tv adaptation of his uncle's book <laughs> but uh, but besides that it's uh the first two episodes really gripped gripped me i i watched them i sat to see what it was about and mm-hmm. basically ended up watching the two hours straight through darn it i'm committed <laughs> I hate when that happens. We've done that a couple of times where you know, when we, you know, let's try the first episode of this series yeah. and it's kind of mixed emotions at the end, no matter which way we go, it's like, okay, great. It's a series we want to watch. Damn it. We're going to have to spend all this time watching it uh, versus, oh, what a disappointment. What a relief. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, on the blatant self-promotion side, uh, this time I'm going to do a little, something a little bit different. I mentioned to you, Gary, earlier that uh, I was going to be donating platelets today, mm-hmm. and I did so earlier today. Uh, platelets, for those who don't know it, are a, a component of your blood. They actually take your blood out and run it through a centrifuge and then give most of it back. The uh, I wrote an article on what it's like to donate platelets, and it is part of a medium publication that was started by our one of our other former co-hosts and now occasional guest, Randy Cassingham, called What It's Like To. It's a series of articles on what it's like to do or experience or see various things. Very interesting series. They're all short. They're all like five to 600 words. They're easy reads. And my entry into the fray was what it's like to donate platelets that goes into what I just described in a little bit more detail. Hmm. Cool. Uh, as far as, uh, for me, I, you know, the air tags came out, we talked about them last week, last week, yep. and, uh, I got them and, uh, I did a video just basically, uh, the, the basics of how they work and all of that. Um, so I'll point to that video. I'm assuming you haven't lost your dog yet. I'm not, no, I haven't even, I, I <laughs> the problem is that the, uh, you know, the, the kind of collars and cases and all that aren't really out yet. I mean, you can get the official Apple ones Mm -hmm. and Amazon has a ton listed with beautiful pictures, but they're uh, all like shipping the end of May. In other words, Uh, they haven't even been produced yet. Somebody threw a graphic up there and then sent an order off to a factory and all that. So I don't really have a way to, but I am planning on uh, doing all sorts of things. um, Tests. I already did a test where I left my phone in the car and walked around a park for a while, and my phone was recording its screen while I did the walk. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it did capture. I, as I walked around, I kind of noted mentally as I was walking by people and said, I wonder if any of them have an iPhone that's <laughs> picking it up. And at one point, um, when I got back and looked at the recording, it shows that I was in the, not the middle, but in the lake. And I thought, oh, well, it's not that accurate. And then I remembered, wait a minute, there was somebody in a paddle boat <laughs> right there. So, of course, I'm walking right by the edge of the lake. He had an iPhone. 
And they, you know, it was a family and they, somebody had an iPhone and they picked me up. And of course, all they know is that location. They don't know where I am. That's you know, awesome. So it sends that location and the device ID in. So that was, even though at first I thought, oh, not that accurate. Then I thought, oh, extremely accurate. <laughs> it got the battle cool. mode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more of your exploits with that. I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you saw it. There was one of the teardown sites um, actually mm -hmm. tear, tore one apart and determined that they were able to drill a hole in the case for a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Does. I'm sure that like nukes the warranty such as it is, it, but it would be tough because the battery, the CR2032 battery mm -hmm. is pretty much, you know, it takes up right the whole you'd, so you'd have to draw it right near the edge, you know, drill right. the hole right near the edge right. to and avoid are that these, battery. I'm assuming these things are water resistant at least. They're water resistant. Yes. Yeah. Right. So getting a little wet in the rain or whatever is not yeah. going to hurt them. But Drilling anything a hole more, in it is a bad idea. Yeah, anything more you're going to want to put it in a case anyway. Awesome. Well, that sounds like another episode wrapped up. And look at that. It's exactly. Yeah. Ugh, how always. Do we do that? I don't know how we do it. I don't know either. The show notes for this week are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh133. If you've got a comment or a question, you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH podcast. And of course, you can always leave your comments on the show notes page. Thanks as always for listening. And we will hear or see or do something again next week. Or the week after, probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Bye.